Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Original Gangsters Podcast, another video episode. Uh, today's episode, we're going to have kind of a, um, an around-the-horn type uh, discussion, some of the latest events in the underworld, talk about some of the uh, movies that are out that have to do with organized crime. Uh, before we get into uh, introdu- introducing our uh, my partners in crime here, I just want to, want to remind everyone to check us out on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Uh, the more that you like our content online and, and retweet and, and what have you, um, that gives us um, an opportunity to, to produce more episodes more often, so that's really important. And uh, I just wanted to remind our audience members, uh, in case you're unfamiliar with us, some of our newer um, audience members, uh, I'm Jimmy Bucciolato. I'm a, I teach criminology and political science courses, and I also wrote the book Early Organized Crime in Detroit. You can find that anywhere. You can check out my website, jbucciolato.com. Uh, I'll hand it over to my partners in crime. Well, Roberto is behind the glass. He, he probably won't be uh, timing in. But uh, Scott Bernstein, you want to introduce yourself a little bit for some of yeah. our newer audience members? Scott M. Bernstein, the Prince of the Shadows. As you can tell, <laughs> I'm in a kind of darkly lit room right now. Um, author, uh, true crime journalist, investigative reporter, historian. Uh, been on the beat now for about 12 years. Uh, focus on Detroit. Uh, Chicago, Philadelphia, New England, and uh, I love what we're doing with this podcast the last year. I think we've been up and running about a year now, and uh, I I appreciate all you guys out there that have been giving us love, and uh, whether it be on social media or via your clicks and downloads, um, it's really inspiring and and kind of is the fuel to our engine, because we know uh, if you like what we're giving you, we want to keep on giving you that stuff, and I think there's um, so much terrain to be mined for for what uh, the kind of the zeitgeist that original gangsters exist in where uh, you know we we try to put into context and, and give a, a, a an untraditional lens into uh, certain aspects of organized crime and, and we're really glad that uh, you've been it's been resonating with you yeah and, and uh, today we have um, an interesting episode we're going to talk about some of the uh, the, the latest um, events, some pretty dramatic things unfolding in the underworld. Uh, thankfully, we have Scott Bernstein, and he's like the man on the street. And uh, let's start off with uh, the latest on BMF, Scott. We had a big episode on BMF last, uh, our last episode, and there that that story is still unfolding. So, what's going on? What's the latest? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, BMF has been back in the news in a major way these last three three weeks or so. Um, Co-founder Terry Southwest T. Flannery walked out of prison after uh, 15 years, walked out 10 years early due to the COVID pandemic uh, back in early May. And then the ground was kind of set for his more high-profile brother and uh, co- uh, his, his uh, other co-founder of the Black Mafia family, the more um, considerably more prominent Demetrius Big Meech Flannery, who is really... The, uh, the the most iconic black crime lord uh, probably ever and uh, built a just a, a gigantic legacy for himself and uh, he's been in prison as well for 15 years and was hoping that his brother's release was a precursor to his own release and uh, as opposed to his brother's case where the US government signed off on Terry walking out early they are 
they're taking uh, an opposite stance when it comes to meat, and it's one of those situations, I think, when your, your legacy um, is kind of the gift and the curse uh, in, your, in your criminal brand. Uh, it helps you reach the, the these epic heights that that Big Meech has has uh, attained in the last two decades, but it also makes you stand out from the crowd and and makes it so uh, the government has more of an agenda to keep you locked up. Big Meech has so much power in terms of his voice. Forget about the drug game anymore, but his voice is it resonates uh, across so many different patches of, uh, and pockets of pop culture, uh, that really scares, I think, that scares the U.S. government about how much influence he has with people. And, you know, uh, a fellow researcher of mine, I thought, really succinctly summed up what Meech and BMF was. I said, you know, they became a part of hip-hop culture. He said, no, they didn't become a part of hip-hop culture. They were hip-hop culture. And that shows you how, how relevant and prevalent they were. Uh, so Big Meech uh, had his original uh, motion in front of the same judge that let Terry out uh, thrown back and uh, deferring to the uh, Bureau of Prisons. They first had to make a decision uh, before uh, U.S. District Court Judge David Lawson would rule on Meech's um, motion for, for compassionate release because he had already had a, uh, a motion in front of the Bureau of Prisons for release on a medical and uh, Lawson let Terry out, and then Meech appealed to Lawson. Lawson said, you have to uh, first have your case decided by BOP before I would decide it. Last week, BOP came out and denied Meech's medical request for release. Now the case is back in front of David Lawson. Uh, this past week, um, Meech's uh, lawyers, he's being represented by Wade Fink, who's the son of Neil Fink. Neil Fink was the uh, kind of in-house counsel for the Detroit Italian Mafia for a good 30, 40 years, represented all those guys, the Jackalones, uh, Corrados, Tocos, uh, and, and whatnot. And uh, the U.S. prosecutor just on Wednesday or Thursday, I think it was Thursday, put in a 26-page response brief uh, trying to, to block uh, Meech's attempt to get out. So uh, I think Judge Lawson is expected to rule on whether or not he's going to let Meech out on that compassionate release that his brother got uh, early next week. So I would expect either June 1st or June 2nd we'll get a, a final say on if Meech uh, comes out of prison early like, uh, like his brother Terry. So can you also update us on last episode we uh, discussed the um, uh, – disagreement between Irv Gotti and 50 Cent, and, and that, that has continued to escalate. Um, yeah. Irv Gotti said, I think his position is he, he, does, he doesn't owe anybody anything, and so um, can you update us on that situation? Yeah, so just to give a little uh, background, we were talking last week, or last week, the last time that we uh, met for a, a, an original Gangsters podcast, we had Frank Scartosian, the federal agent that uh, was you know integral in building Operation Motor City Mafia, which brought down the Black Mafia family, and uh, we were talking about how um, when Terry walked out in early May, Fifty Cent, who's one of these uh, prominent pop culture entities, rap superstar and, and whatnot. Um, who's in 
doing business with Black Mafia Family right now, or the remnants of Black Mafia Family, in the sense that he's trying to put a television uh, show together on the Stars Network to follow up his power show. And I shouldn't say he's trying to, it's been greenlit. Um, so it, he's making a television show right now uh, about the Black Mafia Family. And he used Terry's release and the fact that BMF was back in the news as the way to kind of do this social media victory lap where he started attacking uh, perceived rivals um, of BMF, or actually, you know, not really perceived rivals, his rivals that he felt uh, owed Black Mafia family money from the last 20 years. Uh, we also spoke with Scartosi how the Black Mafia family was known back in the 90s and early 2000s to uh, allegedly provide financing to some uh, a, a very... Um, He's frozen. I'm frozen. No, you're you're not now. He can oh. he can yeah he can edit that back. What did I miss anything? You were about to say that he they provided money for allegedly. And that got yeah mailed out. Okay, I'll lost start. you for about four seconds. Okay. Uh, so when we had Frank Scartosi on last week, we talked about how uh, back in the 1990s and early 2000s. The Black Mafia family was alleged to have provided financing to some uh, very, um, very big hip-hop labels and rap labels. Guys like Puffy Combs from Bad Boy and Irv Gotti from the Murder, Inc. label had their name thrown in that discussion. And they were both targets of, of 50 Cent's um, social media assault, where he's claiming on social media and tagging Puffy and Irv Gotti that they owe... Black Mafia family money for those seed investments back in the 90s. Uh, according to 50 Cent's social media accounts, Puffy uh, made nice with, with Terry, and they had a phone conversation and, uh, and cleared that all up. But Irv Gotti, uh, I guess, is, according to 50 Cent's social media, uh, is claiming that... Uh, he doesn't owe anything, or if he does owe anything, he can't pay because of the pandemic, and he's going to get on some type of payment plan. All these allegations are just crazy, and the fact that 50 Cent's going around and kind of making these threats, these pay or else threats, you know, I've talked to some lawyers that are like, that is really possibly going to pull Terry and Meeks into some hot water because it looks like you have someone going out and, and, and collecting illegal or trying to collect illegal debts for you and, and threatening either, you know, possibly violence if they don't pay back and you're doing it on a public forum and you're doing it with two people that are either have gotten out of prison and are on very tight uh, parole restrictions or someone that's trying to get out of prison, you know, in theory you could just be bringing on a parole violation or bringing on, you know, 50 Cent could be putting himself, you know, exposing himself to charges. Yeah, what what is the relationship? Is 50 Cent, is this more, in terms of him intervening here, is he, we know he has historically has a problem with Irv Gotti. Is this more about an opportunity to take a shot at him, or does 50 Cent have this pre-existing close relationship with, no. with Terry and the BMF no, camp? No, I don't think so. I think he's, he's co-opting the BMF name and then trying to leverage it for himself in these long-standing beefs, specifically with Irv Gotti, who uh, Irv and uh, 50 have a pretty 
uh, storied history over the last 20 years, some of it having to do with Irv Gotti's, uh, uh, his flagship artist, Ja Rule, was 50's biggest rival uh, in the rap game. And then uh, Irv Gotti was also closely affiliated with a very iconic, legendary New York drug boss by the name of Kenny uh, Supreme McGriff, who 50 Cent came up under in the drug game. And if you believe certain street accounts, when, you know, the, the narrative that's out there about 50 getting shot nine times, which isn't a lie. I mean, he did get shot nine times. Uh, possibly the assailant was Kenny Supreme McGriff, or the order had come from Kenny Supreme McGriff. So 50 had a, has a quite the uh, checkered past when it comes to uh, Murder, Inc., Irv Gotti, Ja Rule, and, and, and Kenny, Kenny McGriff, who Irv Gotti got indicted uh, in relation to back in the 2000s for possibly helping Kenny uh, uh, launder drug money and whatnot and was uh, acquitted at, at, at trial. And so how much do we know about the uh, TV show? I, I suspect some of this also has to do with it gives an opportunity for the 50 Cent camp to promote yeah. <laughs> promote their television show. Do we know, like, yeah, is this going to... definitely uh, reeks of partial PR stuff. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. Um, do you think, what do we know about that TV show? Is it going to be loosely based on BMF? Is it, like, inspired by BMF? Or is this an actual, like, biopic, like, or whatever the term is, uh, for, uh, you know, like a, a, a biographical account of that organization and those individuals. I think it's going to be the real story of the rise and fall of, of Terry and Demetrius Flannery, starting from the streets of uh, Detroit in the early 1990s and then eventually expanding around the country by the end of the decade and the dawn of the new millennium to the point where they control uh, cocaine trafficking in almost half of the 50 states. Uh, it, it was by far in terms of scope and scale and ambition, uh, the biggest uh, domestic urban uh, drug organization in American history. And uh, its legacy is uh, quite astounding when you think about how, what BMF did uh, and who Meach and Flannery, or sorry, who Meach and, and Terry Flannery are uh, still really uh, courses through the veins of of both hip-hop culture and pop culture. I mean, it's like every other rap song that you hear on, uh, whether it be on the radio or on uh, your, 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 your streaming devices, has a reference to Big Meech or, or Black Mafia Family. I mean, one of Rick Ross's uh, you know, most famous songs, in the chorus it says, I think I'm Big Meech. <laughs> right. Yeah. And by the way, Scott has been talking to the uh, original Freeway Ricky Ross. And Ricky Ross, if you're out there, come on the OG podcast. We, we really want to interview yeah, we're gonna you. So. To, we're going to try to get Ricky Ross on. And uh, I've also uh, had a couple conversations with Meech. I've uh, been in communication with him and his camp for the last, I'd say, 18 months or so. So uh, he's a friend of the show. And hopefully uh, when he does get out, um, we'll be able to, We'll have him jump on the OG and give us his perspective on all this. I wonder with the TV show, is this going to be like one of these like um, uh, concise like uh, you know ten episodes and then and then they they move on or do they they anticipate this being a continuing think, multiple seasons kind of deal? Yeah, I don't think it's a limited run series. I think they want this to be uh, three, four, five seasons. You know, Power was six, I think. Uh, and one of the main writers of Power, 
uh, a Detroiter by the name of Randy Huggins is the showrunner for the BMF show. So a lot of the same people uh, creatively behind power uh, have transitioned into doing uh, the Black Mafia family show, including Randy Huggins, who is the showrunner, and then 50 and his production partner, Randy Emmett, who is uh, quite a powerhouse in, in, in Hollywood. It'll be interesting to see if the um, if the how, how true to the the actual events they keep because I think of like uh, a show. Um, what's the one about the uh, the Canadian uh, mafias of Bad Blood? Yeah, what's Bad the, Blood about the Rizzuto, um, uh, War. Right, they they took a lot of license with that for the first season, and now the second season almost has nothing to do with with the okay. actual. I mean, loosely based, but so it'll be interesting to see how the the. What approach they take for the BMF show? The lead character in Bad Blood didn't exist. He's a composite. Right, right. And speaking of that, uh, you also have some updates for us uh, in the Canadian underworld too. That uh, since we uh, we just brought that up, what, what's going on for the latest um, in terms of the gangland in uh, Toronto? Yeah, if we want to segue, um, talking about Bad Blood, which chronicles this biblical mob war that's been raging in, in, in Canada for the last decade plus. Um, the war started in uh, Quebec, in Montreal, in the late 2000s and uh, quickly uh, expanded into Ontario. And uh, it, it doesn't really show any signs of slowing down. And you, uh, this isn't an exaggeration. You have had you know, over 100, if not 200 murders that have been tied to this conflict that uh, that television show, which was on FX, I believe, and then hit Netflix after it was on uh, uh, on FX. Um, which I think it was CBC. It started off CBC and then... Yes, or CBC and then I think right. it was FX in, right. in America and then it's on Netflix. Right. Uh, and Anthony LaPaglia plays Vito Rizzuto and uh, Paul Sorvino played his dad, uh, the patriarch of, of the of the Rizzuto uh, mafia empire of uh, um, Nicolo Rizzuto. And uh, just to give people like a 20-second synopsis, the Rizzuto crime family had run, uh, you know, the mo uh, were, the, were the biggest mob bosses in Canada uh, from the 1970s into the 2000s. Vito Rizzuto became this kind of John Gotti-like figure uh, in the Montreal press. Uh, he got sent to prison uh, in the mid-2000s for... Uh, a triple murder that was actually depicted in the movie Donnie Brasco back in the, 19, the 1997 film with, with uh, Johnny Depp and Al Pacino. And uh, there's a murder where they, where they kill their rivals. It's known in the underworld as the Three Capos murder. And Vito Rizzuto was, was convicted of that about 25 years after it happened. Had to go to prison. And then when he went to prison, uh, his criminal empire literally um, caved in. And he had a lot of his allies that decided that him going to prison was a perfect opportunity for them to take the crime family away from him. And they declared war on not just the crime family, but his own family, his blood family. Vito Rizzuto's father, his son, his brother-in-law were all murdered um, in about a year period, around 2009-2010. Vito um, Rizzuto eventually got out of prison in 2012, and it was like scorched earth for the next year, him killing all of his uh, allies turned rivals. Then he died uh, of a kind of a, a, a um, an aggressive 
form of cancer. He died in 2013, but uh, the war has not slowed down. Uh, bringing us to today, uh, the mob boss of Toronto, who has been involved on the outskirts of this war, uh, uh, Jimmy DeMara, uh, DeMaria, um, who's been running the Toronto underworld or big portions of the Toronto underworld uh, since the at least the, the 1990s, uh, was released after six years in prison uh, a little bit early because of the COVID uh, pandemic. And the second that he walked out of his Ontario jail cell, he was scooped up by uh, Canada's version of the Immigration Department. Um, I think they're called the Border Service Agents and is now uh, facing deportation proceedings. Uh, the, 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 the country of, of Canada is looking to deport their, uh, their Toronto uh, godfather. You know, you need a, really need a scorecard to, to appreciate or to follow what's going on because you have multiple organizations um, at, at different levels. Um, so you have initially Montreal was uh, Cosa Nostra, and uh, part of the Bonanno crime family. Right. And uh, then you have, um, now you have um, Calabrian organized crime groups operating in Canada. Well, they have been for a long time, but which I believe the guy from Toronto is uh, uh, Calabrese. And, and, and Bringetta. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it gets difficult to sort out because, as Scott points out, when, when Vito Rizzuto went away, you have multiple people trying to take the organization, uh, both both Calabrians within Cosa Nostra and Calabrians who are part of the Andragata. So, um, and, a New York, uh, and a New York mob boss who had been deported right. from New York to Canada who decided to make an alliance with some of these former allies of Rizzuto's who became uh, rivals of Rizzuto's, and they came together to try to, uh, to take Rizzuto down. And then that alliance fell apart and they try to start killing each other. Right. It, it's very confusing because then at one point the Montreal family basically seceded from the Bonanno crime family. And then as Scott points out, Sal Montagna, who was the boss of the Bonanos, uh, he was uh, deported to Canada. And, and he tried to take over, uh, essentially bring Montreal back into back into the Bonanno orbit. And he, he was unsuccessful. He, he was one of those casualties you're talking about. He was assassinated as well. He made a partnership with Vito Rizzuto's right-hand man, a, a, uh, a Canadian, a French-Canadian named Raynal Desardins, uh, and Desardins put his cards in with Montagna to try to knock off Rizzuto. Uh, yeah, yeah, so it, and then Desardins it, and Montana fell out, and Desardins orchestrated Montana's assassination. Yeah, it's it's really it's challenging to sort out who's actually calling the shots there now. Is it is it the remnants of the Rizzuto Cosa Nostra organization? Is it the uh, Andragata? Um, uh, is it some of these independent guys like Desjardins? I think uh, his his brother or somebody from from his orbit is still around, active there, I believe. Um, so um, it's it's difficult when you talk about the Italian mafia. Uh, What's going on there? Because um, I think in the United States we think of the Italian mafia, and and we consider it synonymous with Cosa Nostra, but that's actually actually not true. There are multiple different types of Italian mafia groups based on your region. So not all mafia groups are Cosa Nostra. Some are uh, Gamora, uh, Andragata, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Sacra, uh, 
uh, Corona, you need to, so um, it depends uh, on your region. And then it gets even more complicated because there are some Calabrese guys who are in Cosa Nostra. Like, I mean, there are a lot of Calabrians who have been prominent mafiosi. I think uh, Nicky Scarfo in the United States was uh, Calabrese. Um, I think maybe Joe Adonis was, Frank Costello. So it becomes very challenging as a reporter, a criminologist, law enforcement, to sort out um, who's who in, in Canada right now. It's very, very, it's fascinating, but it's very challenging. But it's also fascinating to track the spread of this war, how it started in the late 2000s in Montreal, by the early 2010s, it's in Toronto, and then by 2017, 18, 19, it's in Hamilton. And all of a sudden, the Buffalo Cosa Nostra is getting pulled into it. Uh, and the, uh, the Musitano crime family, which had been aligned uh, with the Buffalo uh, Cosa Nostra for a while and then wasn't, and then looks like they are now back uh, aligned together. Uh, like you said, a lot of, a lot of uh, moving parts there to, to, to keep track of. But uh, just to see how the, uh, the insurrection, if you will, spread across the whole country. And and it's I I'm not I'm not overstating it when I say this is biblical. I mean I I can't think of a mob war ever, or at least not in modern times, where it's not dozens of murders, it's hundreds of murders, and it's over a decade plus of time. And it's like I said when we started having this conversation, it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Yeah, the only the only parallel I can think of, which was uh, ended up being even much more violent, is roughly late seventies through mid nineties in Sicily, right. when it was when they, they were all killing each other. It was very difficult to figure out who was on whose side. There were there were traitors within the families killing their own guys, and then those guys would get killed by the people that they uh, initially aligned with. So um, yeah, it's it's been a while since we've seen something like this, but. It's, it seems very unstable, and every time I hear about a new guy getting uh, murdered there, I often think, like, how many guys are left at this point? Because as you point out, I mean, hundred. I mean, I'm not sure what the exact count is, but it's difficult to imagine that there are, there are many guys left because they, they've all killed each other off. It's, it's really remarkable. And then the bikers play a role in this, and then the Haitians play a role in this, which is interesting the way that the, the Canadian underworld milieu uh if you will, but the fact that you have, it's not just, um, you know, Italians and not Italians, it's, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. It, it is Italians and not Italians, but it, it, usually it's a, a much more kind of um, established groups that, that are ethnic-based, um, but it, it, it's usually, I think, more contained. This is uh, just so many different factions, so many different ethnicities that are all kind of fighting for the same piece of the pie. And all these alliances, all these kind of complex uh, networking and alliances that had existed for all these years have just disintegrated. And there, there's even an Irish, there, at least there was, I don't know how many of those guys are yeah, left, but the there's even an Irish presence right. in Montreal too. The West End Gang, uh, right. and then you have the Hells Angels who um, aligned with Rizzuto, uh for a long time, right, and has and have helped keep the Rizzuto Empire at least alive. It's not dead. It's not anywhere near the the the, the level of power that it was ten years ago. But because of their 
uh, relationship with the Hells Angels and, and that muscle uh, behind them, they've been able to uh, keep scrapping and, and, can, and, and, and maintain remnants. Uh, in fact, when Desjardins went to prison for murdering Montana, the godfather of the biker underworld in, in Canada for a long time, uh, Maurice Mamboucher, put out a murder contract on Desjardins on behalf of Rizzuto, who had just passed away, but like wanting to kind of uh, take care of some uh, unfinished business for his for his mob don buddy Rizzuto uh, and, and get even for him by killing his 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 enemy behind bars. Yeah, the, the the geopolitics are really interesting, and if you go back to Vito Rizzuto in his prime, when when Montreal was still technically a, a territory, Bonanno territory, Vito Rizzuto was was actually like this multinational drug lord on par with like what we see with the Latin American cartels. And yet his technical rank is he's only a soldier in the Bonanno Prime family. Right. <laughs> he's like the lowest rank. His formal ranking is very low, actually. Yeah. And yet that doesn't that doesn't really give you um, an idea of how powerful and influential he was. And, and my understanding is that they, they wanted him to be the captain, and he always turned it down. They wanted him to be the Montreal uh, captain, and he always turned it down. I'm not sure why. Maybe, maybe he always had sights on... Uh, Montreal having sort of this independence from the Bonanos, but it's, it's just fascinating. He exerted power though over the Montreal captain, uh, George. Stockton. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. He was he was essentially more more powerful than his own captain. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bizarre situation. Right. Um, um, speaking of bikers and violence, you want to uh, jump into what's going on in uh, bring it back to the states? What's going yeah, on yeah. in so some biker news uh, over the last couple weeks? Um, Let's start uh, with the Pagans, who are the most um, powerful uh, biker group on the East Coast, uh, Southeast Coast. And uh, they had uh, two deaths of, of, uh, of, of leaders of, of, the, of the Pagans organization, uh, one by natural causes, one uh, via assassination. Um, so out of West Virginia, um, the former vice president of the Pagans, uh, Floyd Diamond Jesse Moore, uh, passed away at 70 years old. I'm not positive of if it was COVID-related or not, but he had a really kind of intriguing uh, reputation as, you know, he was the second most powerful uh, Pagan in, in the whole country throughout the 2000s, and he was anti-drug, uh, anti-narcotics, which... It really makes him an outlier because the entire uh, biker underworld, since it began, the lifeblood of the biker underworld is the drug industry. Yeah, going back and, to the 70s even, crystal meth yeah, and whatever, yeah. Yeah, Diamond Speed. Jesse Moore um, was – he, was, he wasn't a, a, a law-abiding citizen by any means. He still advocated for uh, – uh, taking gambling territory, uh, extorting other biker gangs, uh, loan sharking, uh, prostituting, all that stuff he was in favor of. But, and, I, and I think it, it, it's not, I don't think it was a moral or ethical situation where he didn't agree with drugs morally or ethically. I think it was like you know, some of the conventional wisdom of La Cosa Nostra through the years where they're just being pragmatic. You know, the, the drug sentences are much harsher and longer than the uh, the non-drug sentences in terms of when you're dealing with 
uh, arrests and, indi and indictments. Can you get more snitches because yeah. of that? So uh, Diamond Jesse Moore passed away in Charleston, West Virginia, uh, and uh, he, he, like I said, he leaves he leaves a, a very uh, interesting, intriguing legacy for the the position uh, in the underworld that that he held. And then, how does that connect to what's going on in New York? I don't really know if it has any connection. Um, what's going on in New York right now is a brewing war between the Hell's Angels and the Pagans. Um, the Hell's Angels uh, are a West Coast-based club that came into New York uh, in the 1970s, and that's kind of their, their stronghold outside of the, the West Coast. They don't have a huge prom, uh, uh, they, do, they don't have a huge presence. I'm talking about the Hell's Angels in the Midwest. The Midwest is considered um, outlaw territory. They don't. The Hell's Angels have a a presence down in Florida, but it's kind of shared with the Hell's Angels. Or sorry, the Hell's Angels have a presence down in Florida, but it's kind of shared with the Pagans and the Outlaws. Um, but the East Coast has long kind of. When you're talking about New York, uh, the the Hell's Angels have always been um, really had a foothold in there, and in the last couple of years, in the Pagans national hierarchy, you've had the emergence of a new president, uh, Keith Conan the Barbarian Richter, who has put forth an edict to quote-unquote take over the entire East Coast to the point where he's opened uh, a half a dozen to a dozen new chapters. He's doing a lot of patchovers where he's absorbing smaller clubs around the East Coast that are now becoming pagans. And he, you know, in a in a um, in a ruling that that is definitely a, a statement that he's trying to make. He's made it so instead of the rockers, which are the vests that the uh, bikers wear to identify themselves, usually it says you know pagans on the top, and then on the bottom it will say you know pagans New Jersey, pagans Philadelphia, pagans Maryland. Now. Everybody on the East Coast just just wears a pagans on the top and on the bottom it just says East Coast. So uh, there's been some violence uh, in New Jersey, and then in the last month there was an assassination of the Bronx Pagans president, who um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but uh, he was murdered and the police believe uh, he was murdered by the Hell's Angels. That, there's actually some surveillance right. footage of that crime, which is uh, pretty far out. If you if people haven't seen that yet, I'm sure can find that on online. Um, um, speaking of um, the uh, recently departed, um, back here in Detroit, a significant underworld figure uh, recently passed away from natural causes. Um, did you want to uh, update our listeners on it? It ties into a subject that we've talked about a lot on the on the OG podcast and previous uh, episodes. Yeah, the name of the, the pagans boss in the Bronx was Francisco Rosado. I just wanted to be able to uh, correctly identify. But, sure, yeah, of course, Detroit, thanks. Um, moving into moving back towards La Cosa Nostra, uh, we had our second COVID-related death. This was the uh, first um, fully initiated soldier 
Uh, back in April, there was a, um, an associate by the name of uh, Mitchell Steady Eddie Karam, uh, from uh, Middle Eastern descent. He was half Iraqi, uh, half Lebanese, I believe. Uh, he passed away from COVID. He was 84. And uh, now, last week, Antonio Toto Ruggiero, uh, the last of the four Ruggiero brothers who were just really a force of nature in, in the crime family for, for many, many years, uh, whose family a lineage in the Detroit Mafia date all the way back to, to Prohibition. And uh, the final two Ruggiero brothers died uh, in the last 10 months. Tony uh, Antonino Jr., uh, or Tony, Tony the Cigar, Tony the Exterminator Ruggiero, uh, he died back last summer. And then uh, Toto Ruggiero, who was 83 years old, I believe Tony was 85. Toto, who was 83, died... Uh, last week um, for, uh, in a COVID-related illness. Um, the Ruggiero's were the, were the capos in the Detroit mob that controlled Washtenaw County and Genesee County. Um, one, uh, one of those counties is about uh, 45 minutes west of Detroit. Um, the other county is about 45 minutes north of Detroit. So it's kind of interesting, the, the, the geography of that. But uh, the Ruggiero brothers always were um, aligned closely with the Toko family. Uh, Black Jack Toko, who was the godfather of the Detroit um, mob for, for 40 years. Uh, if, you, if you look at some of his, if you look at some of the FBI records that are um, detailing Jack Toko's rise to power, they uh, frequently reference the Ruggiero's as being some of his primary muscle. Uh, there were four Ruggiero brothers. There was the two I just referenced who have, who have died in the last 10 months, Antonino Jr. and Antonio. And then there was uh, Luigi, who they called Louis the Bulldog. Uh, and then there was Joseph, the, the youngest brother, who they called Jojo. Uh, and uh, all four of them um, were, you know, they were players. And uh, they, were, they were very, very trusted uh, to the fact that Jack Toko felt comfortable enough to use their headquarters uh, in, a, in, the, in the Ann Arbor area, the uh, Timberland Game Ranch, which for years was the preeminent um, upscale hunting lodge uh, in, south, uh, in, in southeast Michigan. Um, and that's where uh, Louis Ruggiero headquartered out of. And Jack Toko held his top secret uh, godfather inauguration back in the summer of 1979 he held it at the Ruggiero farm, and there's also been rumors over the years um, that the Ruggiero farm could be the final resting place of Jimmy Hoffa. I don't put a lot of uh, validity in that, but there had been informants over the years that had pointed FBI agents to the, to the Timberland Game Ranch to go dig for Hoffa, but the FBI uh, was never able to get a search warrant. Yeah, the Ruggiero Toco connection goes all the way back to uh, Prohibition and probably even before that because uh, Vito Toco, um, uh, Jack Toco's uh, father, was close with the uh, Ruggiero's. And so I I'm guessing the, the Ruggiero that just passed away, would that, would that have been his, his father and his uncles, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, to right. so, total, so, the, so the, the guy that just died is Toto Ruggiero. His dad who was the dad of the four Ruggiero brothers, was Antonino Sr., 
who went by Big Toto. Uh, so I guess this this Toto that just died would be Little Toto. But right. he was just known as Toto. But Big Toto Ruggerello was Black Bill Toko's bodyguard uh, and driver and top hitman uh, during the uh, uh, Crosstown Mob Wars uh, of the late 20s, early 30s. And uh, when, when Black Bill Toko and, and Joe Zerilli uh, came up through the ranks of the East Side bootlegging gang and then eventually uh, founded and created what became the Detroit La Cosa Nostra crime family, the Toko Zerilli crime family. Uh, I guess um, for some reason I'm like the Segway King today. <laughs> but uh, speaking of prohibition and yeah. the Crosstown Mob War, that that all ties into uh, reminds me of Al Capone. Yeah. And there's a new film out about Al Capone streaming. Um, I have not seen the film. I don't believe uh, uh, Roberto has watched the film yet either. But uh, Scott, you've you've watched the film. Uh, you want to give us a few minutes, uh, just yeah, to, your yeah. thoughts on the film? I haven't seen it yet, everyone. So. I, it, it really missed the mark uh, for me. I was so excited about it. Uh, I love Tom Hardy. He was cast as Al Capone. I really, I really enjoyed and appreciated conceptually what this movie was uh, and was eager to, to indulge in it. Uh, the idea of making an Al Capone movie about, about the era you never hear about. You always hear about uh, Al Capone, the 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 um, at the height of his power, right? Yeah, this 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 superpower of a mob boss during Prohibition, the first celebrity mob boss in American history. Uh, just you know, ruthless, but charismatic. Uh, very very headline worthy around the globe during Prohibition, and uh, you don't really hear much about his last years of life when he had been released from prison and was living down on his estate in Florida and was losing his mind, frankly. Uh, and I, I've always been fascinated by the notion that this, this like you said, this, this titan uh, of, 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 of the underworld um, it, it didn't get any bigger than Al Capone when you're talking about crime wars. It still doesn't. And to think about him in his final years where he was just a shadow of his former self, I, I thought that would be interesting to um, dissect and, and, and give a treatment in terms of uh, uh, creating a, a, a story narrative. So I... I was very intrigued by Josh Trank, the writer-director, uh, who was going to approach the, the material from that direction. That said, I, I don't think he executed it very well. And I didn't think that Tom Hardy, uh, I didn't like his, his take on Capone. He, he played it like an animal. I mean, the entire role was grunts and mumbles and barking, there was zero humanity to it, and and I guess I'm I'm guessing if I said that to Tom Hardy, he would re respond with Yeah, that's the point. But I just I, I it didn't resonate with me. Is that is that supposed to have something to do with the like the the fact that he was uh, uh, had syphilis and was probably mentally like. Yeah. You know, suffering from mental illness at that point, is that supposed to be the... Yeah, I think that was part of it. 
But I just didn't know, like, the whole character had to be grunts, mumbles, and barks. And (laughs) you couldn't understand a word that he was saying. Well, that's like Bane in in The Dark Knight Rises. Remember Bane? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. And my understanding is, uh, we don't want to spoil it for too much for people, but uh, who plan on watching it. But my understanding is that it's uh, it's kind of a surreal film, which it, which is I'm not sure how well that blends with like, big gangster like, films. But like gangster what's up with that? Psychedelia. <laughs> so it's like dreams and flashbacks, uh, and it, it's trippy. And I, I wonder what's up. I mean, you just don't usually think of that as, um, I mean, Once Upon a Time in America has some elements of surrealism in, in a very minor way, I think, but to go full uh, balls out uh, to realism, or at least just to a large extent, I don't know, it seems odd to me. I mean, I I'll reserve judgment. I haven't seen it, but... Um, I'm just uh, you, you're, you're seeing that in the reviews a lot. People not crazy about the, uh, the the kind of elements of surrealism. The one scene that I did like that I'll point out uh, was a scene where uh, Capone's wife calls back to Chicago and asks his former bodyguard to come and spend time with him and cheer him up. And that that character, who I'm guessing was kind of a homage to Tony Accardo. Uh, Played by Matt Dillon, they called him Johnny, but I, I believe it was supposed to be Ricardo. Um, comes down there, and that was the one part of the movie I really liked. And there was like two scenes, one where they're driving uh, to go fishing, and he shows Capone pictures of Capone in the 20s, like at his peak, and they're kind of reminiscing about the good old days. Uh, and then when they're on a boat fishing. Um, they're also kind of harkening back, and Capone gets gets a fish on his uh, on the reel, and an alligator comes and bites it off, and then Capone goes in the back of the the, uh, the back of the boat and gets a machine gun and kills the alligator. Which wow. I, I enjoyed that scene. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, that, the end of life for Capone is uh, it's something that there's there's some mystery there. I'm not sure how well documented it was, but um, my understanding is that, uh, and and apparently they don't touch upon this in the film, but my understanding is that um, there there was still this reverence for him to the extent that his uh, Lieutenant still allowed him to believe that he was the uh, capo mafia of the of the outfit, which it seems like they didn't have to do that, uh, but uh, but they did anyhow. So um, it's just kind of an interesting aspect of that of his um, the whole mystique about yeah. Capone. They didn't, they didn't deal with this other than that one scene where the the Matt Dillon character comes down to Florida. But from my research, you know, his brother Ralph bottles Capone, who who kind of became his right hand. In, in his final uh, final ten years, would like it, it was almost like he would run travel junkets. But instead of going to Las Vegas, he would get these kind of convoys of Capone's ex lieutenants and bring them down to Florida for either a weekend or a week uh, to kind of kiss the ring, uh, maybe kind of patronize him and make him think that he was that he was still uh, the top uh, the capo du uh, to, uh, how do you say it? the capo du Capo di tutti capi, yeah, the boss of bosses. Right, right, right. Right. Um, 
and uh, kind of give them an envelope of cash and then head back to Chicago and, and continue with their business. I think his mansion down in Miami or somewhere in the Miami area it just so it just sold, didn't it, or is it still right, for, for sale? sale? Like and it dropped the price from like eighteen million to twelve million. Wow, I, that that's kind of right in Roberto's uh, wheelhouse. Maybe I he'll told, put a bit. I told Big <laughs> maybe he'll put a bit on that. You told who? Oh, Meech, yeah. Told Meech that'd be, should buy it. Yeah, that's that would be that would be very fitting, very yeah. apropos. Yeah. Um, all right, you want to uh, sign us off, Bernie, and uh, we'll we'll meet up with uh, with our uh, friends and audience members next time. Yeah, thanks for uh, tuning in for another episode of the Original Gangsters Podcast. We appreciate you out there. Uh, we appreciate you uh, tuning in to all of our our social distancing uh, era of of Original Gangsters. Uh, stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon bringing you all the original gangsters content that, that you need, and we love bringing it to you. So uh, stay safe, and we'll see you guys soon.